Well, very special welcome to all of you in here. Any guests, visitors, we're so glad to have you. Super warm welcome to all of you tuning in online, worshiping with us online. We love you. We miss you. Cannot wait to have you back in here. It's good to be together. Amen. It's good to be together. Okay, we had a major development in the last week in the McMurray home. Yes, my oldest daughter, Lauren, who's finishing her senior year at Seattle Pacific University, got engaged. Yes. How is that possible? She she called us uh, a week ago Friday. Kathy and I had come home. We'd had dinner with a couple in the church, and we were watching the British Baking Show. And there we were, sitting there, and the phone rings, and it's Lauren. And Kathy answered the phone, and she put it on speaker, and Lauren started bawling, like the ugly cry, Mom! We're like, oh, somebody died, you know? I'm engaged. And we're like, are you happy about this? Like, we're trying to fill this out, you know? But uh, she got proposed to by a young man in our church. The, the two of them grew up together. His name is Nat Gurney. He's a wonderful young man who loves Jesus and comes from an incredible family that's been a part of our church. And so we are doing a wedding this summer, which is amazing. So uh, pray for my bank account because I have two kids in private school and now a wedding. Somebody start a GoFundMe for Pastor Adam. Okay, (laughs) get your Bibles out. Pull out that Bible, open with me to the Gospel of John. We've taken a turn in our study, in our formed series, where we're now talking about the where of discipleship. So whereas at the beginning of our series, the first half we were asking, how does Jesus form disciples? We've turned a corner now and we're asking the question, where does this happen? And the context is the church. We're talking about the community of Jesus is the locale, if you will, of discipleship formation. It doesn't happen in isolation. It doesn't happen disconnected out there. It doesn't happen through some form of discipleship online, through a podcast or someone you follow in the ethernet. It happens inside of a local Christian community of faith. And we gave you a paradigm that I want to put on the screen, four words that we're using to think about this kind of community. And here's the four words, okay? Belong, believe, become, and build. We're working through these words together. And I, I want you to sort of embrace this as the church. This is a paradigm that we're using to think about the kind of church that Jesus uses to form disciples. It looks like this. You say, wait a minute, pastor, aren't those first two words switched? Shouldn't believe come first? Don't you believe and then belong to Jesus? Well, actually, often not. So if you were here last Sunday, Marianne showed us one of many accounts in the Gospels where Jesus invites someone to belong in his community well before they believe in him, knowing that through the process of belonging and experiencing the beauty of this rare community of Christ, often that is the catalyst that triggers faith in the claims of Jesus. So Marianne asked the question, how can we cultivate a community of belonging in a culture of isolation, right? And this morning we're moving to that second word about about belief. What kind of a community do we need? And here's kind of the question that I've been wrestling with all week. And I know you're going to totally resonate with this. How can we cultivate a community of belief 
in a culture of deconstruction and doubt and skepticism. If you've been paying attention, you know that unwavering Christian belief is becoming more and more difficult in our culture. In our post-truth, post-Christian, doubt everything, deconstruct everything, belief is being challenged in an unprecedented way. None of us need to look far to find an example of someone who's going through the process of serious doubt, deconstructing their own Christian faith. I'm sure you can think of several right now that you know personally. Amen. (laughs) We'll keep the joy up in here, okay? And the numbers are coming in. So I read a study this week that said that 30% of pre-pandemic churchgoers won't come back. 30% won't come back for a variety of reasons. But one of them is certainly related to what we're going to talk about this morning. Did you know Barna released a study where they said that 60% of Gen Z, so the 18 to mid, 18 to late twenties, that generation, 60% of them who were Protestant churchgoers will give up on faith, give up on church, at least for a season as they get out into that world and they start getting challenged with all these ideas that, 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 that counter what they were raised with and they'll deconstruct. And so the question we have to ask is, what kind of church could foster belief and provide shelter for people who are experiencing that in a world? A, a place where where people who are deconstructing can can come in and and find shelter where their faith can be cultivated? And is there a place in the Bible, is there an incident in the ministry of Jesus that could give us some wisdom? And I believe there is. It's John 6. Will you turn there now? John 6. Go to the end of the chapter. The end of John 6 describes the response of a group of disciples after a teaching that Jesus gave and That teaching could best be described with words like intense, audacious, bordering on the bizarre. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to drop into this story midway through. I'm going to show you their response and then I'll back up and I'll give you the context a little bit about the actual teaching. Look with me, John 6 verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by my Father. And after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Did you know that was in the Bible? (laughs) That's in the Bible. What in the world did Jesus say? that caused that. Whatever he said divided the room and caused a massive group. And this is not just a random crowd, okay? Notice, 
John is very explicit. This is not a random gathering of, of folks. These are disciples. Twice, John says, disciples. Look at verse 60. He says, when they heard it, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? These are disciples. Hard saying, it doesn't mean they were having difficulty understanding it. It wasn't that it was complex. It was that it was offensive to them for some reason. It was, they didn't like it. it. It grated against their sensibilities. And they thought, who can possibly listen to this anymore? Amazing. If you never struggle with some part of the teaching of Jesus, you're in very rare company. <laughs> because from the very beginning, Jesus has been dividing rooms. And that's okay, right? But what did he say? So the best thing you could do is uh, go back today and read, read John 6 and read the sermon because it's an incredible teaching that Jesus gives. But essentially, he's fed the 5,000 and there's been this miracle. And then a bunch of those folks follow Jesus and they want more signs and miracles and they actually want more food. I mean, the bottom line is they're like, we want more of that bread. And they're like, you know, Moses gave manna from heaven to the people for like years in the wilderness. And Jesus basically rebukes them and says, Moses gave physical bread. You need to realize I am the bread of heaven. I'm the bread of heaven. And then they argue with him a little bit more. And then he says the most if you, if you interpret it wrongly, he says the craziest thing that, that has ever been recorded. He says, um, listen to me, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you can have no part with me. And suddenly the room's divided. And the tragedy, as we see in verse 66, is that at this moment, it reveals that there's a group of disciples, people who had been following Jesus, and it exposes the fact that they didn't ultimately ever believe in him, and a massive wave of them deconstruct and turn away and stop following Jesus. Amazing. But now look what happens next, because the, the, the next thing that Peter says is pure gold. Pure gold. Verse 67, so Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? He turns to the 12, and, he's, and there's this wave of deconstruction. He turns to the 12 and he says, do you want to leave as well? And look what Peter says. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? I mean, where else would we go? I'm going to come back to this, but what I think Peter's saying is he's saying, Lord, the teaching was hard for us too, but the reality is we've, we've considered the alternatives. It's not like there's a better leader out there. It's not like there's a better rabbi out there. It's not like there's another community that would be more compelling. We've thought about it. And the reality is, where else would we go? Where else would we go? I have this cat at my house, okay? He's a Bengal cat. Do you know what this is? A Bengal cat is a breed between some domesticated cats and then basically like an Asian like tiger or something crazy. I don't know what they were thinking, but so this cat can jump like 
15 feet straight up in the air. He was born. So I wake up in the morning and I come out with my cup of coffee and he'll be like on top of the refrigerator, just like waiting to kill me. And it just startles you. You're not expecting it, right? And this cat is always trying to get outside, okay? Because he wants to run. But he's not thought about the fact that outside is a lot worse than inside, okay? And he'll, I'll come home and I'll see him at the window waiting to make a break for it. And I'm thinking, dude, have you thought about where you're, because I know what you're going to do. You're going to get outside. You're going to lose your mind, freak out. All your hair is going to stand up. A coyote is going to try to eat you. And then you're coming right back inside, right? Okay. And this is what, this is what I'm saying. Like the disciples have this moment where they're like, we could walk too. But we've considered the alternatives. Where else would we go? I mean, who else would we follow? And then look at this. Look what he says next. You have the words of eternal life. No one else has the words of eternal life. And we have believed and we've come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Wow. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to stop and I'm going to say a prayer real quick. Okay? Will you you bow your heads with me? Lord, how we need this morning to have wisdom from above. As we talk about what we're about to talk about next, as we open this passage and and understand it, and as we think about who we are as your people, would you speak, Lord? Clear away distraction. Give us sharp minds and open hearts, we pray. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We need to talk about deconstruction this morning. We need to talk about deconstruction because we're witnessing a disturbing wave of widespread deconstruction in our generation. What started as a fad a few years ago, and it was just a fad where pretty high-profile Christian influencers, musicians, etc., would go online, they'd get on TikTok, they'd get on Instagram, they'd go on YouTube. Rhett and Link, who were the hosts of A Good Mythical Morning and and uh, an author, Josh Harris, and another author, Jen Hatmaker, I could go on and on. It started out as like highly influential Christians who would go online and they would publicly deconstruct their Christian faith and then they would walk away and deconvert. That, what started as a trend, has now become a disturbing phenomenon in our culture. And we need to talk about it. Because it's no longer just a fad, it's not going away, and it's not going to get better anytime soon. So a definition first. The word deconstruction is a bit hard to define, partly because it was popularized by a French postmodern philosopher. And if you know anything about French postmodern philosophers, they avoid clarity at all costs, okay? And truth claims. So it's a very nebulous, but uh, the basically, here's, it, here's deconstruction in a nutshell, if this is the first time you're hearing this word. In basic terms, it refers to the process of revisiting and rethinking long-held beliefs, specifically in the Christian faith although it can happen just about anywhere. Part of my faith journey was deconstructing secular humanism that I had, that was just dogma in my education as a kid. So you can deconstruct every way, but for our purposes, we're going to focus on deconstruction that's directed towards specifically evangelical Christianity. 
And the point is that you, you deconstruct something that's been constructed for you, sometimes through your childhood or just you, you've grown up in the church or whatever and something happens and then you, be, you, you begin to deconstruct. And the question is, why is this happening? What's causing this? So a couple, a couple of reasons, I think. Number one, sometimes people deconstruct as a part of a legitimate critique of the way a faith community has misrepresented Jesus. Notice the word legitimate. Some deconstruction is legitimate. It is the result of somebody being around a, a faith community and starting to realize, maybe even as they read their Bible or see the true heart of Jesus, realizing something's wrong here. Maybe they grow up in a hyper-fundamentalist church or a hyper-legalistic church. Maybe they're a part of a, of a community and they, they begin to look behind the curtain and realize this community, is they've conflated politics with religion. I mean, there could be all kinds of reasons, but the point is that that kind of deconstruction is legitimate because it involves looking at the way a faith community has misrepresented Jesus and saying something's not right here. And folks, the thing you need to know about that is Jesus modeled that for us. The, the Sermon on the Mount is one long deconstruction of a religious tradition of men that was flawed, where Jesus would said, you've heard it said this, but I tell you this, you got the whole thing wrong. The Protestant Reformation is deconstruction. It was Martin Luther saying the, the, the theology and the traditions right now are warped, that you've misrepresented the heart of Jesus, and we have to deconstruct this. We're in that line of Protestant reforming. So if, you're, if a person's deconstructing because they're reading scripture and then using scripture to critique a of a faith tradition that's misrepresented Jesus. That's, that's what Jesus modeled. But there's another kind of deconstruction where a person uses the wisdom of this world to critique scripture and its authority over the church, and that's an illegitimate kind of deconstruction. Here's, that's one reason. Here's a second reason. Sometimes people deconstruct in response to a deeply painful experience. A super negative experience with a church or with a spiritual leader specifically. Anybody heard of a little podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill? Anybody heard of this? Not heard of this? Raise your hand if you've listened to The Rise and Fall. Okay, so several of you. This is a podcast that is uh, building in popularity. It's a podcast that tells the story of a church that exploded in growth in Seattle with an extremely gifted leader who was also extremely authoritarian. And over the course of many years, a lot of people got really wounded. And there's like a trail of dead bodies of people who deconstructed their faith. When the Ravi Zacharias story broke last year, my heart dropped because I thought, and that's another painful one. I, I listened to this, the account of what happened and it was so painful and so wicked. But what I thought was how many people who were impacted by Ravi and his ministry will now second guess their entire faith tradition, so brutal. 
And here's the thing. We need to lovingly surround and support some who are deconstructing as a result of this pain because for them, deconstruction might be the only way for them to save their faith. And so they need a community that feels safe where they can come back and go, okay, this is what the way of Jesus actually looks like. My wounds and my hurts and my super negative experiences were, 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 were not the way of Jesus. And now I find myself in a community that's trying to follow the way of Jesus. And we want to be that kind of community. But notice in both of these first two, a person is not actually deconstructing Jesus. They're deconstructing misrepresentations of Jesus. See that? Okay, here's a third reason. Sometimes people deconstruct as they come to terms with the actual teaching of Jesus. The actual Christian worldview. And they're around and they're listening and they're hearing and they're, and they're listening to the teaching and suddenly they hear something that Jesus taught, that Jesus holds to and like those disciples that day, it grates against their sensibilities and they begin to back away and deconstruct. And this is where we need to become aware of the dark side of deconstruction, okay? There are some pitfalls here. For example, it's very tempting to deconstruct faith so that it conforms to our personal or cultural preferences. And the, and the reality is in our online culture, if, I, as I, as I, if I'm sitting in a church and some Sundays I'm hearing things that I really like and then other Sundays I hear th things about the way of Jesus and I don't like them, unfortunately in our culture, a person can now pull back from a local faith community and they can go online and find any podcaster, any Instagrammer who will tell them only what they like to hear and they can filter out all the other aspects of Christianity and they can curate a faith of their own making. And so somehow we have to continue to have a way inside the church to have experiences where we are made uncomfortable. That's got to be a part of the Christian faith. It was Augustine who said, if we believe what we like in the Gospels and reject what we don't like, it's not the Gospel we believe in, but ourselves. Notice the disciples. Notice what they said in that moment. They said, this is a hard saying, verse 61. Who can listen to this? And what that means is that they had assigned to themselves somehow the authority or the expertise to critique the teaching of Jesus. They felt justified somehow to stand in judgment over his worldview. But the question is, on what other foundation of authority were they questioning Jesus? Was it another teacher? Was it their cultural norms? Was it just a feeling they had? We don't. We don't exactly know. But the point is, when we're deconstructing, we're often quick to deconstruct Jesus, but, but maybe we should start by deconstructing our own worldview first. And so here's what I'm going to do. For the next 15 minutes, I'm going to divide my comments into two pieces, okay? The first thing I'm going to do is I want to address people in our church family or people who are worshiping with us online who are, who are here right now, you're, you're hearing this and you're like, you're describing what's happening to me. I'm, I am literally hanging on for dear life to my Christian faith. 
And in a church our size, friends, it's happening, okay? There are people struggling. I'm gonna address that group first, and then I'm gonna talk to the church family as a whole about the kind of community Jesus wants us to be. So here's what I'll say first to you. If you are in this moment, you're struggling, you're deconstructing, the very first thing I want you to hear is that we love you and you are welcome here. And this is a safe place for you. This is a safe place for you to ask your questions, struggle with your doubts. We wanna, we wanna provide an environment where you can do that. And if we have not done that well, if you have not felt safe, if you have felt unloved or judged or condemned as you've worked through questions in your Christian faith, I am standing in front of you now as the pastor apologizing to you because that's not the way of Jesus. That's not the heart of Jesus. But the second thing I wanna to say to you if you're in that place of deconstruction is heed what Peter said. Listen to those words of Peter when Jesus said, are you gonna leave too? And what did, what did Peter say? He said, to where else would we go? Meaning Peter had thought about it. He, he'd thought about the alternatives and thought they're just not that great. It's not like there's another community out there. It's not like there's an, another leader out there who has words of life. And I just wanna encourage you, don't stay in deconstruction. The goal, the hope is that by God's grace, you would rebuild your faith and reconstruct something that, is, that represents the heart of Christ according to the scriptures. And so stay with it. Stay with it. Okay, now I'm gonna to talk to our church, the rest of us. And here's my question. What kind of a community fosters faith in an age of deconstruction? What would it look like? What would be the features of that community? I think there's three features that Jesus modeled for us. And you might write these down because I'm gonna ask you to be involved in creating this. Three features. Number one, an unintimidated posture towards doubters. Unintimidated, okay? Jesus was totally unintimidated in this moment. He didn't panic, he didn't freak out, he didn't get angry, he didn't go on the defensive, he didn't back away. When you're in a relationship with someone and they're, and they're struggling, the least helpful thing you can do is panic or lose your mind, okay? Or mistreat them. It's not gonna help. When someone is struggling, if you communicate through insecurity or panic that somehow God is threatened by that person's questions, you're not exactly representing a God who's worth their devotion. And the reality is God is not threatened by people's questions or doubts. And so neither should his people be. We should be prayerful, good listeners, willing to engage, step in, just like Jesus. Just like Jesus. Unintimidated. That's number one. Unintimidated posture. Here's number two. An unwavering focus on Christ's glory. Unwavering focus. It's really interesting this is what Jesus did in response to the doubters. He, 
He heard what, that they were struggling, and you know what he did next? He immediately moved the conversation towards a focus on his own future glory. This is really profound. I'm going to read it to you first. Look at verse 62. Jesus said, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Jesus said, I know you're struggling with what I just said. So what I want to do is I want to I point you to a day that's coming because the reality is there is a day coming when you're going to see me ascend. First, I'm going to be lifted up on a cross. Then I'm going to rise again and I will ascend to the place of glory where I was before. And so anything that feels abrasive or hard to hear, just take all of that teaching and put it under the context of a Lord who's risen and ascended and glorified and sitting on the throne of the universe. And Jesus said, see that. That is the cure for doubt. The ultimate cure for deconstruction is to see the glory of Christ an encounter with his glory. And this is, that's why this is our unwavering goal, folks. This is why every time we gather, every time we worship, every time we preach, every time a community group gathers, every time a river group gathers, every time a Bible study happens, the primary unwavering goal is to seek and experience and lift up the glory of Jesus. Amen? That's what we're doing. The number one reason to not give up on Jesus is Jesus. Because <laughs> if you give up on Jesus, what you lose is Jesus, the glorious king of the universe. If you're new to River West, you're starting to discover we're really into Jesus here, okay? We're like obsessive. We have what I call OCJD, obsessive compulsive Jesus disorder, okay? It's not to say we're not Trinitarian. We're Trinitarian. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But if you're in a service where the Holy Spirit is at work, the mark of that service is not attention to the Holy Spirit. The mark of that service is attention to the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. And we are really into it. We love Jesus. We think he is the most wise teacher ever, but that's just the beginning. He's the Lord. He is the creator. He's the savior. He allowed his body to be crushed and broken to pay for human sin. And then he rose again on the third day. And now he's seated on a throne in heaven and he's worth our devotion. And as long as we keep our focus on him, this will be a place where people who are doubting can experience his glory. But we have to do it together. I need you to be praying about this. Every Sunday when you come, would you pray, Lord, help our church to lift up the glory of Christ. That's what we need. That's what we need. I want to be a part of that. And I'm asking you to be a part of it too. Number three. So we have, an, we have a an unintimidated posture towards doubters, an unwavering focus on the glory of Christ. And then number three, and this is really important, an unapologetic commitment to his word. Unapologetic. Jesus did not apologize for what he said. Did you notice that? It's so important. They said, this is really hard. 
Jesus didn't say, oh, I'm sorry. I'll scratch that next time I teach, (laughs) which he probably could have been tempted to do. Two times John says that the word of Christ is life. Did you notice that? Jesus says it and then Peter repeats it. Verse 63, B, Jesus said, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Here's what I think the logic. He's saying, look, I recognize that what I just said is really difficult to hear. But, but, and so rather than backing away what he says, but what I want you to know is that I am totally committed to my word because my word is life. My word creates life in people even if we don't always understand it, even if there are parts of it that are difficult, the reality is the word of Christ generates spiritual life. And then Peter says the same thing when, when Peter's ready to walk in verse 68. He, he, first he says, where else would we go? But then he says, you have the words of eternal life. The disciples, that was the difference. They knew the word of Christ. It creates life. The temptation in our culture, when there's an aspect of the gospel that is abrasive or hard for people or offensive, the temptation, and you see it happening all the time, is to carve out those pieces, shave off the sharp edges, cut away things that are, not, that are, that are offensive to our modern sensibilities. And the problem is that over the course of years and years and years, you would end up cutting out everything because the Cultural sensibilities are always changing. You've probably heard the story of Thomas Jefferson, who really enjoyed his New Testament, but he did not believe in the deity of Jesus. In fact, he didn't believe in anything supernatural. And so Thomas Jefferson, because he appreciated the teaching of Jesus, what he did is he took his gospels, his New Testament gospels, and over the course of two decades, he just started taking a pen and scratching out any part of the gospel where Jesus did something miraculous or supernatural. He carved out the virgin birth. He carved out the miracles. He carved out the miraculous feedings. He carved out the resurrection. And when he got done, he created his own little Bible called the Jefferson Bible, which which he actually called the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth. And in the intro to this book, it says, with these words written, oh, first it says, uh, to the corruptions of Christianity, I am indeed opposed, but not to the genuine precepts of Jesus himself. And so he basically created a book of the philosophy of Jesus. And, and he thought he was rescuing Jesus from all the craziness of the supernatural. But as one commentator wrote, and I love to have to read this quote, one commentator said, the Jefferson Bible may have proved the opposite of what Jefferson intended. Listen to this. This is so profound. It doesn't show Jesus to be a great moral teacher once the story is stripped of the miracles, the exorcisms, and the other acts. It presents Jesus rather as someone who didn't do anything at all. Jefferson's gospel is a hard gospel. The blind do not end up seeing. The lame do not walk. 
the multitudes will remain hungry because there was no miraculous feeding. And people who came to Jesus to get their sins forgiven left unforgiven. So Thomas Jefferson did not save Jesus back as a moral teacher. He created a moral monster. Because what makes Jesus moral and amazing is the fact that he was divine. And the reality is because he's divine, he has the right at times to say things and teach things that rub against our culture. In every culture, in every age, the gospel will press against some part of that culture. And that is a grace from God. And so whereas, whereas the church might be tempted at times to back away and shave off the Bible, Jesus says, no, lean in, lean in with winsomeness and love and joy, but don't stop teaching my word, reading my word, obeying my word, even those parts that are difficult. I want to close with something practical. Do this. Turn in your New Testament to 1 Timothy 3. We'll, we'll end here. Here's what I want Here's what I want us to do as a church, as a practice. What the early Christians did is became very evident in the, in the early church that more than just reading scripture, the early church made a practice of meditating on the word and even taking particular passages that became confessions, like Christian confessions. Like think of like the Apostles' Creed, but there are confessions all throughout the New Testament. And the early church made a practice of taking those confessions and meditating on them because they knew it would, it would cultivate belief. It would form, it would reinforce confidence in Christ, the glory of Christ, and the church would stay strong in their beliefs. So here's one example, 1 Timothy 3. This is a, um, a really helpful passage. Uh, I'm going to read 14 to 16, 1 Timothy 3, verse 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now, if you look at your Bible, what you notice immediately is that that's a creed. That's like a, that, that section there, he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit. This was probably one of the very earliest Christian creeds. And right before that creed, notice what Paul says. He says, we confess this mystery. So we take these creeds, we take, you could go to a lot of them. You could go to Colossians 1, where it says Christ is the visible expression of the invisible God. And then Paul goes on and he lifts up this amazing creed about the glory of Christ. And we know that the church probably meditated on that. Many Christians had those creeds memorized. They had hidden them in their hearts. And what did that do? It cultivated belief. And so what we're going to do as a church, and uh, this is a practice in our community guide that a lot of you are working through, is one of the things we're going to do this week as a practice is we're just going to meditate on some Christian scriptures as a church family. And I'd like to encourage you, take a creed, go to Colossians chapter one and just meditate on a creed and hide that word in your heart 
and see what God will do. See how it will reinforce your confidence in the scriptures and get you focused on the glory of Christ. And above all, folks, let's, let's cultivate a community of belief in an age where so many are suffering from skepticism. Let's be that kind of community. Amen? Amen. I'm going to pray, and then the worship team is going to come and we'll worship. Will you bow your heads with me? Lord, we are so very thankful for the wisdom of Jesus, for the perfection of his teaching. His word is life, spirit and life. And we need it. And we know, Lord Jesus, there's nowhere else to go. You are the one. You are the way. You are the truth. You are the life. How we thank you, Lord. How we pray that we would be a gracious, gentle, winsome, patient community of believers. Where folks who maybe are wounded or struggling or, or doubting could come and and think and wrestle and ask questions and be loved and encouraged. May we be that kind of a community. But may we, may we remain tenacious in our commitment to your glory and in our commitment to your word, we pray. And we ask it together in the powerful, perfect name of Jesus. Everybody said, amen.